spam. Genesis 2 is the message, actually. So welcome and good morning, great morning, great morning, and welcome Genesis 2. It's the reason why I'm doing Genesis 2. I made the dessert out of Genesis 2. I'm glad I did the dessert early yesterday because I'd be in trouble. All right, let's get started. <laughs> Genesis 2, number one. Heaven and the earth were finished down to the last detail. By the seventh day, God had finished his work. On the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Hmm. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day. He made it a holy day because on that day, he rested from his work. All the created, or all that was created, all the creating God had done. This is the story of how it all started, of how heaven and earth, when they were created, Adam and Eve started on verse 5 and 7. At the time God had made earth and heaven before any grasses or shrubs and sprouted from the ground, had sprouted from the ground, God hadn't yet sent rain on earth, nor was there anyone around to work the ground. The whole earth was watered by underground springs. God formed man out of dirt from the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. The man came alive a living soul. Then God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, he put the man he had just made in it. God made all kinds of trees grow from the ground, trees beautiful to look at and good to eat. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden, also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of, out of Eden to water the garden and from there divides into four rivers. The first is named Pishon. It flows from Havilah where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. The land is also known for a sweet scented uh, resin and the onyx stone. The second river is named Gion. It flows through the land of Cush. The third river is named Hittichel and flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. God took the man and set him down in the garden of Eden to work the ground and keep it in order. God commanded the man, you can eat from any tree in the garden except from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it. The moment you eat from that tree, you're dead. God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper, a companion. So God formed from dirt the ground, all the animals of the field, and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man named the cattle, named the birds of, of the air, named the wild animals, but he didn't find a suitable companion. God put the man into a deep sleep, and he slept. He removed one of his ribs and replaced it with flesh. God then used the rib that he had taken from the man to make woman and presented her to the man. The man said, finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, name her woman, for she was made from man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife. They become one flesh. The two of them, the man and his wife, were naked, but they felt no shame. <laughs> now I'm going to read it in the King James Version, because that still is a little bit twisted. But though I understood it all, I want to make sure you guys get it, because it's going to get deeper than that. So. <clears throat> that was more of a version for myself that I had not read. I wanted to see if it sounded any different from the King James Version. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sacrificed it. Because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. In the day of the Lord, God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth. And the every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils and breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in the Eden, and there he put the man with whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pisan. That is it, compasseth the whole land of Havilah. Now of Havilah, where there is gold, there is gold, and, and the gold of that land is good. There is bdellium and the onyx stone, and the name of the second river is Dion. The same is that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia, and the name of the third is Hidakal. That is it which goeth forward toward, I'm sorry, the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it up and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. For in the day that thou eatest, therefore thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is good that the man should not be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. Meet. M -E -E -T. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was their name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead, instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made, him, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. <clears throat> that would give you Genesis 2. We break it down, broken down, we go into the creation completed, Adam, in the, in the Garden of Eden. So, and he rested on the seventh day. God did not need rest on the seventh day because he was tired. He rested to show his creature, show his creating work was done. To give a pattern to man regarding the structure of time 
in, in seven day in a seven day week and to give an example of the blessing of rest to man on the seventh day. The seven day week is permanently ingrained in man. Though some through history tried to change the seven day week, a 10 day week was attempted during the French Revolution. Those attempts have come to nothing, by the way. They were futile. We are on a seven day cycle because God is on a seven day cycle. God sanctified the seventh day because it was a gift to man for rest and replenishment. And most of all, because of the Sabbath is a shadow of the rest available through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you take a reference, and you actually tap into Colossians 2.16 through 17 and Galatians, and that's actually one that I was going to cover today, but I'm not. But you want to put down Galatians 4 and 9 through 11. It makes it clear the Christians are not under obligation to observe the seventh day because Jesus fulfilled the purpose and plan of the Sabbath, of the Sabbath for us and in us. He, he completed it for us and in us just to be able to use it as an example. And that's what goes into Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. Christians do not lose the Sabbath. Every day is a day of rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Every day is specially set apart to God. So it's really what one's own interpretation would be, but it would be smart. See, we are free from the legal obligation of the Sabbath. When I say legal, I'm talking about, you know, bound by, by God's, like it's not a commandment. We dare not ignore the importance of the day of rest, though. God has built us so that we need one. And in my case, maybe two. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we are also commanded to work six days. He who idles his time away in the six days is equally a culprit in the sight of God as he who works on the seventh. In our modern world of four or five day work weeks and generous vacation time, surely more leisure time can be given to the work of the Lord. So in it, he rested from all his work. So though God rested on the seventh day of creation, he did not institute the Sabbath or show us his rest his, in his own sake. God does not take the Sabbath off. Jesus himself said, my father has been working until now, and I have been working, John 5, 17. God does not need a day off. Is everybody hearing me on this conversation? But man needs to see the rest of God and know he can enter into it by the finished work of Jesus. The description of each other day of creation ended with the phrase, so the evening and the morning were the day. However, the seventh day of creation does not have that phrase. This is because God's rest for us isn't confined to one literal day. In Jesus, God has an internal and eternal Sabbath rest for his people. Again, that's all in Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. God having completed his work of creation rest as if to say, this is the destiny of those who are my people, to rest as I rest, to rest in me. As we get in through four through seven, the history of the heavens and the earth is broken down as, as such. The his, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. This probably ends the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, a history given directly by God to either Moses or Adam, recording the history of God's seven-day creation. This was something no human was present to witness, by the way. In the next sentence, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the first use of the Lord, Yahweh, in the Bible. Our English word, Lord, comes from an Anglo-Saxon word for bread, as does our word loaf, because ancient English men 
of high stature would keep a continual open house where all could come and get bread to eat. They gained the honorable title of lords, meaning dispensers of bread. As we know, the bread is life, is the food in which God gives us. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, this history begins before there were any vegetation on the earth. Back to Genesis 1.1, a time when they were only space, a watery globe we know as the earth. The Lord God gave not, I'm sorry, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. When God first created vegetation on the third day of creation, man had not yet been created to care for the vegetation on the earth, and there was no rain. The thick blanket water vapor in there, that's why they call it mist, in the outer atmosphere created on the second day of the creation, made for no rain cycles, but for a rich system of evaporation and condensation, resulting in heavy dew or ground fog. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. When God created man, he made him out of the most basic elements, the dust of the ground. There is nothing spectacular in what man is made of, only in the way those basic things are organized. Um, it's amazing. I was actually having a conversation about um, people having bowel obstruction and the intestines um, and how sensitive it's been and how big of a problem it has become across the land. Um, with Perla because obviously she works in the hospital and had lost somebody and it's just and then I lost two people in one day. They were 24 years old yesterday, um, which is really crazy. 24 years old and both of them had the same issue, bowel obstruction. That's kind of crazy. See, when the Bible uses dust in a figurative or a symbolic sense, it means something of little worth associated with lowliness and humility. In the Bible, dust isn't evil and it isn't it's nothing but it is next to it isn't not meaning it's not nothing but it isn't evil but it's next to nothing um with this as and breathed into his nostrils with this divine breath man became a living being like other forms of animals the term she nephesh is used in genesis 1 20 and 21 and here yet only man is a living being made in the image of god the word for breath in Hebrew is ruach. The word imitates the very sound of breath. It's the same word for spirit and is the case in both ancient Greek, pneuma, and the Latin, spiritus. God created man by puffing his breath, his spirit, within him. The implication readily seen by any Hebrew reader or anyone that is a student and a student is that man was specifically created by God's breathing some of his own breath into him. The King James Version reads, man became a living soul. This makes some wonder if man is a soul or if man has a soul. This passage seems to indicate that man is a soul, while passages like First Theologians, I'm sorry, Thessalonians, 5.23 and Hebrews 4.12 seem to indicate the man has a soul. It seems that the scripture speaks in both ways and uses the term in different ways and in different contexts. As you look at 8 and 9, two trees in the Garden of Eden, as he's talking about the two trees in the Garden of Eden, the Lord got planted a garden eastward in Eden. Eden was a garden specifically planted by God. It was a place God made to be perfect habitation for Adam and later Eve. There he put the man whom he had formed. 
The details in the creation of Adam and Eve teach us something. After reading Genesis 1, we might have assumed, we might have assumed that man and woman were made at the same time, but the text doesn't specifically say so. We assume it. We don't know the details about man's creation until Genesis 2. Out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow. See, the rest of Genesis chapter 2 does not present a different or contradictory account of creation. Rather, it is probably the history of creation from Adam's perspective. This is Adam's experience of creation, which does not contradict the accounts of Genesis in 1, 1, 2, and 7. It fills it out. In Matthew, Jesus referred to events in Genesis and to events in Genesis 2, 1 and 2, as one harmonious account. The tree of life, the tree of knowledge, of good and evil, these two trees were among all the other trees God created and put in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life was to grant or to sustain eternal life. God still has a tree of life available to his people today, spoken about in Revelations 2 and which is in heaven, Revelations 22. And if you're going to read Revelations, you might want to take a shot of brandy. Um, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was the temptation tree. Eating the fruit of the tree would give Adam an, exper uh, an experience of knowledge of good and evil, or it is possible that it is called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not so man would know good and evil, but so God could test good and evil in man. As you look at 10 through 14, the rivers in the garden, this is most intriguing to me because it's so many parallels to life. Um, many of you have heard me talk about the, having multiple streams of income coming in. That's not money, that's things coming into your life. There's a specific reason why he has four, four different flows happening here. Now a river went out to Eden to water the garden. You know, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. Pishon, I'm sorry. It is one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. That means every one of us should be following one river into gold. There's a reason why gold is the richest, precious metal that God has ever created, and why it still today has the greatest value on the planet Earth and the greatest exchange rate whenever an economy crashes or goes down. And the gold of that land is good. The dillium and the onyx stone are there. There's a reason why onyx is such a popular stone. If you ask anybody that doesn't know anything about stones, that's never even collected stones, could you name a stone that, that was created? I mean, like if you were a collector, you'll find that nine out of 10 will say onyx. And it's because of this one reason that it was the original in which God created to be able to have I mean, really withstand more than anything else. There's a whole history behind the onyx stone. The name of the second writer is Gion. It is one which goes around the whole land of Cush. Now, I'm not one to have never even partook in getting high, but I know a lot of my friends do. Maybe this is where Cush came from. I do know the word. Yes, I'm going off the, off, off the reservation here for a second, but I'm just sharing. You know, hey, I'm not, I'm not mad at anybody. It's, you know, God created cushion. Okay, now, the name, <laughs> yeah, I know I'm all one this morning. Stick with me. The name of the third, <laughs> the name of the third rib is Hittikal. 
It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, a river went down into Eden. The whole field of this account gives the sense that it was written by an actual eyewitness of the rivers and surroundings. Adam probably wrote this himself. The name of the first is Pishan. These rivers are given specific names which answer to names of rivers known in either the modern or ancient world. However, the names of these rivers can't be used to determine the place of the Garden of Eden because the flood dramatically changed the Earth's landscape and erased these rivers. We know modern rivers today, such as the Tigris or Euphrates, because Noah and his sons named some rivers in the post-flood world after familiar pre-flood rivers. Now, God's command to Adam in 15 through 17, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. See, God put Adam in the most spectacular paradise the world has ever seen, but God put Adam there to do the work, to tend and keep it, hence the way we do our work. If we tend and keep it, work is something good for man and was part of Adam's perfect existence before the fall. The ideal state of sinless man is not one of indolence without responsibility. Work and duty belong to the perfect state, which means if you're having an imperfect state, you probably aren't working probably thinking, but we won't go there. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. The presence of this tree, the presence of a choice for Adam, was good because Adam, to be a creature of free will, there had to be a choice, some opportunity to rebel against God, maybe. If there's never a command or never something forbidden, there can never be choice. God wants our love and our obedience to him to be the love and obedience of choice. Considering all that, look at Adam's advantages. He only had one way he could sin. Now that's crazy, right? He only had one way he could sin. And we have countless ways. <laughs> there are many trees of temptation in our lives, but Adam only had one. I wish God had only given me one. <sighs> anyway. God made this command originally to Adam, not to Eve. God had not yet brought woman out of man. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. See, God not only made his command clear to Adam, but he also clearly explained the consequence for disobedience. God creates the first woman. God, and, and as you look at 18, God declares he will make a helper comparable to Adam. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. It is not good that man should be alone. Let's look at that. For the first time, God saw something that was not good. The aloneness of man. God never intended for man to be alone, either in the marital or in the social sense. Marriage in particular has a blessed civilizing influence on man. The wildest, most violent, sociopathic men in history have always been single. Listen to me. Everybody hear what I just said? If you look at any of them, and even, and that's, that's true all the way up until right this second as we speak, the wildest, most violent, sociopathic men in history have always been single, never under the plan God had given to influence men for good. For society as a whole, this is not good. See, I will make him a helper comparable to him. God's blueprint for creating his companion to Adam was to make a help comparable to Adam. 
Different versions of the Bible translate this idea in a variety of ways, but the idea is essentially the same one in each one of them. And I'm going to share with you, like, if you look at the Amplified way, it says, helper meet. Another one says, a companion, a helper suited to his needs. Beck breaks it down, a helper such as, his, as he needs. A helper corresponded to himself. A helper suitable. A help meet for him, King James Version, as we read. See, a helper comparable. In reference to the marriage relationship, God created woman to be a perfectly suitable helper to the man. This means God gave the plan and agenda to Adam, and he, he and the woman together worked to fulfill it. The phrase in reference to the marriage relationship is used because God has not ordained women to be helpers to men in authority, instead of being in authority themselves, except in marriage and in the church, 1 Timothy 2.12. God gives to men the responsibility and the accountability to be the leader in the home and gives to the woman the responsibility and the accountability to help him. This does not mean there is not to be any help from the man to the woman. Though in many cases, this is sadly true. This is not the way it was meant to happen. It means that God looks down from heaven upon the family. He sees a man in leadership, good or bad, faithful or not, to, to the calling of leadership. A true leader will, of course, help those helping him. That would be an authentic, true, transparent leader that it will work in the law of reciprocity. We only see helping as a position of inferiority when we think like the world thinks. God considers positions of service as the most important in his sight. And it's spoken about in Matthew 20, a helper comparable. Not only was the woman to be a helper, but also she was made comparable to the man. She should be considered and honored as such. A woman or wife cannot be regarded as a mere tool or worker, but as an equal partner in God's grace and an equal human being. Hopefully you guys are with me this morning. We get together. So no helper was found comparable for Adam among the animals. Brought them to Adam to see what, what he would call them. Since Adam had the capability to intelligently name all the animals, it shows he was a brilliant man. Because at this time, Adam's intellect had not, had not yet suffered from the fall. He was probably the most brilliant man who had ever lived. Adam was the first and greatest of all biologists and botanists, if you will. Adam did not name any other animal after himself, calling any other Adam, animal man or human. By this, we see he understood that he was essentially different from all the animals. They were not made in the image of God. It was obvious that Adam, uh, to Adam that the animals came in pairs and he had no mate since God deliberately had Adam name the animals after seeing his need for a partner. God used this to prepare Adam to receive the gift of woman. 21-22, God makes the first woman from Adam's side. This is the first surgery recorded in history. God even used a proper anesthetic, anesthetic on Adam. He put him to sleep. It's a very powerful thing if you think about it. You know, a deep sleep. Oh, let me take a break. All right. The rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. God used Adam's own body to create Eve to forever remind him of the essential oneness. As Adam came to know Eve, he would see many ways that they were different. But he was never, he, he must never forget that they're essentially one. 
and that they are made of the same substance. They are more alike than they are different. So all this Venus, Mars, and stratosphere stuff, you know, men are from this and Venus and women are, no, no, they're made of the same stuff. Hopefully somebody's getting that. We don't really know exactly what God took from Adam's side to make Eve. And it doesn't really matter. Modern research into cloning the genetic replication shows every cell in our body contains the body's entire genetic blueprint. God took some of Adam's cells and changed their genetic blueprint in the creation of Eve. Nevertheless, the story that women have one more rib than men because of the way Eve was created is a myth. It's a farce. So please don't believe that crap. We also know that the bride of Christ comes from the wound made in the side of the second Adam. Jesus Christ, there's a beautiful Jewish tradition saying God made woman not out of man's foot to be under him, nor out of the head to be over him, but she was taken from under his arm that he, that he may protect her from the next to his heart that he might love her. It's a very powerful um, Jewish saying. I don't know if you guys have heard that, but it's strong. Uh, he made into a woman. It is important to realize that there are not two beginnings to the human race, one in Adam and one in Eve. There was one beginning of the human race in Adam because other people have you believe, well, there's two races that know whatever. So he, he brought her to the man. See, God brought Eve to Adam and created Eve out of Adam. He was first, the source and the head. She was created to be the helper perfectly suited to him. That's the subordinate relationship of wives to husband is found before the curse, not only after it. In 23, Adam's brilliant understanding of who Eve is and her connection to him brilliantly i mean he breaks and this is now bone of my bones adam recognized that eve was both like him bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and not like him woman taken out of man they were one but they were not the same flesh of my flesh adam understood the essential oneness in his relationship with eve this point is so important that it referred to several times in the New Testament, including the great marriage passage in Ephesians 5.28. 5.28 and 29, by the way. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. That is Ephesians 5.28 29. It's a powerful conversation, right? No one walks into a room and seeks the most uncomfortable seat. The natural concern we have for ourselves causes us to take care of ourselves. In a healthy marriage and relationship, the husband realizes the essential union he has with his wife, if he's smart, and that he cannot bless her without blessing himself, if he's smart, and he cannot mistreat or neglect her without mistreating or neglecting himself, if he's smart. I know this resonates with a lot of women on this call because I know a lot of your stories and I understand. And I'm gonna yes, apologize sir. for all the bad people that were out there. How about that? Stick with me here. I'm almost there. I was not bad people, bad men specifically because I wasn't raised like that. And I know the guys that are on here were not raised like that. So um, Adam recognized that though he had Eve, um, though, though he and Eve were one, she was not the same as him. She shall be called woman. Woman has been defined as many, I'm sorry, by many uh, as compounded for woe, D-O-W-O, as you guys know, woman, woe, and man, as if called man's woe. 
man's woe back in the day because she's tempted him to eat the forbidden fruit. But this is in no means an original word, nor could it be intended as the transgressions was not then committed. Uh, when you look at 24 and 25, the marriage of Adam and Eve, they shall become one flesh. See, the marriage principle stated here is based on the dynamic of oneness, yet distinction. A man and wife can truly come together in a one flesh relationship, yet they must be joined. It is a spiritual fact, but the benefits of the oneness are not gained by accident or by choice. They shall become one flesh. The passage forms the foundation for the Bible's understanding of marriage and family. Both Jesus, Matthew 19, 5, and Paul, Ephesians, quoted in the reference to marriage. Let me put it like this. The institution of monogamous marriage, home and family, as the basic medium for the propagation of the race and for it to actually persevere and persist. And the training of the young is so common to human history that people seldom pause to reflect on how or why such a custom came into being. Why is an institution of monogamous marriage and home and family as the basic medium, the propagation of the race since the beginning of time? Many went to believe that the monogamous two-parent family was invented in the 1950s by the American television icons Ozzie and Harriet, but Adam and Eve are the original family. This is God's ideal family. This isn't polygamy. This isn't having a concubine. This isn't keeping of mistresses. This isn't adultery. This isn't homosexual or cohabitation. This isn't promiscuity. This isn't living together outside the marriage bond. This isn't serial marriage. This is God's ideal for the family. This is not Byron's opinion. This is biblical and scripture, just so we're clear. And even when we don't live up to it, it is still important to set it forth as God's ideal family. One flesh, one flesh. The idea of one flesh is taken by many to mainly to be uh, to, uh, taken by many to be mainly a way of expressing sexual union. While sexual union is certainly related to the idea of one flesh, it is only one part of what, is, what it means to be one flesh. There are also important spiritual dimensions to one's flesh. <sighs> one flesh. Paul makes it clear that the sexual union has one flesh implications, even when we don't intend so, as when a man has sex with a prostitute. 1 Corinthians 6.16, husband and wife become one flesh under God's blessing. And extramarital sex, the partners become one flesh under God's curse. In this sense, there is no such thing as casual sex. Every, every, every sexual relationship at least begins a one flesh bond. The bond will either be something beautiful, like the beautiful dancing of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, or it will be something grotesque, something like Siamese twins. I'm just saying. <laughs> they shall become one flesh, though an initial bond in a one flesh relationship can be formed at the first sexual relationship a couple has. The fullness of what God wants to do in one flesh relationship takes time. It has to become, the word is to become. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed before the fall. 
question. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were both naked and not ashamed. The idea of nakedness is far more than mere nudity. It has the sense of being totally open and exposed as a person before God and man, transparent. To be naked and not ashamed means you have no sin, nothing to be rightly ashamed of, and nothing to hide. Adam and Eve knew they were physically naked nude before the fall. What they did not know was a sinful fallen condition because they were not in that condition before their rebellion. We often feel uncomfortable when someone stares at us. This is because we associate staring with prying and we don't want people to pry into our lives. We want to remain hidden and only reveal to other people what we want to reveal. When we want to be most attractive to someone else, we do the most to change our normal appearance. We have the thought, if I really want to impress this person, I have to fix myself up. None of this feeling was present when Adam and Eve, when they were naked, before they even understood, overstood, or comprehended what ashamed was. Oh man, that's Genesis 2. I love to hear your guys take away. I approve this message for Genesis 2 of the creation of the world.